This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello. It is Art at the End of the World, the podcast that features artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. My name is Mark Wigmore. Thank you for being here. Thank you for checking in. And this is a special Oscar Week episode of the podcast, and we have the perfect guest to weigh in on the current climate of cinema. In 2020, filmmaker and legendary producer in this country and throughout Hollywood and around the world on the world cinema stage, Robert Lantos. And we think of the films of Adam McGoyan and David Cronenberg and the Oscar and Golden Globe-nominated Barney's version, all the TV shows he's responsible for, and countless awards. Robert is truly a powerhouse within the industry. So glad to have him here. It was a snowy day in Toronto when we got together a few weeks back, and it was a fascinating conversation about film and award season, but also about uh, a challenging childhood for him and his passion for his latest project, The Song of Names. So lots to get to with Robert in just a moment. And we are at the height of film award season, right? So maybe you're in the mood to... Uh, Take another deep dive with a, a great film mind. My remix conversation with TIFF co-head Cameron Bailey uh, was released last Thursday. Three different conversations with Cameron, including his recent stop over at the New Classical FM to offer his thoughts on how the most recent edition of the Film Fest went and his ideas on Martin Scorsese and Netflix moving into the movie game. So download it or stream it where you enjoy podcasts. A great conversation with Cameron Bailey and a nice companion to what you're about to hear. I want to point out, too, that in the last week we are in award season. That includes music and television. And on the music side of things, the Juno nominations were announced last week. And for our American listeners, that is the Canadian version of the Grammys. And uh, big congrats to our first guest from this season of the podcast, Alexandra Streliski. Uh, she picked up three Juno nominations, and this is her first appearance at the Junos altogether. And that includes, that list includes Album of the Year, which is incredible. There's people like you know Brian Adams and Alicia Cara in that uh, category. And her little album, Inscape, is uh, part of that conversation, just a feather in her cap. And you can listen to that conversation with Alexandra as well, episode one of this season's Art at the End of the World. I'll remind you, this episode is sponsored by Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients, including the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and Crow's Theater. Of course, many others. RedEyeMedia.ca to learn more, a wonderful organization for your arts organization. Art at the End of the World is also brought to you by Crow's Theatre, one of this country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. They have a couple great titles arriving on their uh, roster very soon. Crow's Theatre creates unforgettable theatre that examines and illuminates the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheatre.com 
for info and tickets. And thank you to that great organization. So uh, the Oscars are being held on Sunday, and a man who is no stranger to that whole scene is today's guest. Watch the Music from Adam McGoyan's film The Sweet Hereafter, nominated for Oscars, the grand prize winner at Cannes way back in the late 90s, and the product of a relationship shared between director Adam McGoyan and his longtime producer Robert Lantos. Robert was born in Hungary and fled with his family during the Hungarian Revolution in the 1950s. And he had to adjust to life in Uruguay uh, before eventually making his way to Canada as a teenager. It was not an easy life. I can imagine that would be uh, difficult for anyone, and uh, we'll hear more about that with Robert in just moments. He eventually found his way into film through distribution, eventually getting into producing, and then co-founding Alliance Communications for Film and Television. No small company. That was a big deal. And to date, he has produced over 40 films including names like I mentioned, Barney's version, adapted from Mordecai Richler's book, Oscar nominees like Eastern Promises, directed by David Cronenberg, and Being Julia, starring Annette Bening and Jeremy Irons, and like I say, countless TV programs as well. His recipe when it comes to the movies is to seek out stories he likes, often Canadian, and then find a way to get A-list Hollywood stars into the roster of talent. And it has been a very successful strategy. His latest is no different. The Song of Names, it was released on Christmas Day and directed by the man behind the Oscar-nominated The Red Violin, Francois Girard, and starring Clive Owen and Tim Roth. Here's a moment. My dearest brother, from the depths of my soul, I must ask you not to find me. You must think of me now as dead. He is genius. I go back to Warsaw to my wife and daughters. If I can find somebody to teach David, I leave him here. I have a family in mind, Mr. Rappaport. My own son is David's age, and I can promise you the tenets of your religion will be fully respected. Tonight will be Rappaport's first ever concert on an international stage. So great has been the impact of this 21-year-old Polish immigrant that one tends to forget how little known his name still is. Did he say where he was going after the rehearsal? He didn't. I'll keep an eye out. Go and find him. I'm looking for David Rappaport. Rappaport, R-A, he would have been here in the 1950s. He was a virtuoso. When was the last time you saw him? London. Takes the violin right out of my hands. You never heard nothing like it in your life. A moment from The Song of Names, another film where the violin and classical music play an important role, just like the red violin. And it's a narrative that sees a family ripped apart by the horrors of the Second World War. Howard Shore, the legendary Toronto composer, is behind the score, and he will be my guest right here on the podcast on Thursday. So let's get into it. Uh, Robert Lantos, sort of an interesting story on how this all came together. We knew that Robert wanted to do something 
on this film. He wanted to get together, talk about it, but he wasn't able to make it into the classical FM studio. So I suggested that we get together at his serendipity studio, serendipity point films, which is his uh, production company. So that's what we agreed on. And I pushed to get a full hour with him so that we could talk about his entire career. And I remember parking. It was a cold and snowy day in the city, but the sun was shining and his uh, midtown Toronto office is very, very nice. And so while I got organized and got set up, his lovely team brought me updates on when he was going to arrive. And he's a very busy guy. So uh, we were sort of in a holding pattern there. And they kept bringing me cappuccinos which was nice. So I waited, and it was just a a thrilling experience. Uh, The movie posters all around the office, all around the boardroom, the awards were all on display, gleaming in the sunshine, all this film history in the building, just really fascinating to look at. It really gave me a sense of uh, his accomplishments over the decades. Just very relaxing. I don't get a lot of time to myself like that, and so that was a a nice, very nice experience. But Robert, (laughs) he was running late. And it got to the point where I didn't know if I could stay because I had to be on the radio at Classical FM. Luckily, he arrived within just minutes of my hard out time. And so we were able to sit down, and he was very nice, very professional, looked great, snappy suit. And we we sat down, and we're getting to know each other and shaking hands and discussing a few formalities. And he let me know right then, he was quite adamant about this, that he wanted to focus on the new film, The Song of Names. That's what he wanted the the conversation to be about. And I had every intention of doing that and getting to it, but I wanted to be sure that we could get to some other parts of his career as well and his life. And, And Robert, I'll admit, seemed a little hesitant to do that. So you can imagine, I'm all hopped up on caffeine, and I'm very worried about time. And Robert is letting me know what he wants to do with the conversation. And he's not, you know, he's not mincing words. So I suggested that we just kind of get into it and see how it feels. And you might notice that it's a little tight off the top. Maybe maybe you won't, but uh, both of us just trying to figure out how it's all going to go. And I think the results, uh, they speak for themselves. And I'll let Robert have the last word on how he felt it went but uh, very positive, and I think you're in for a big treat with this conversation. We are in a changing media landscape, and, and film is not left out of that conversation at all. In fact, it's probably in the forefront. And when you're a guy like Robert, you've been around for decades doing this, and he's been producing important, cinematic, dramatic films that are not full of superheroes. And here he is in 2020 still doing it, and he's watching the industry basically get turned upside down. And you bring in all the streaming services like Netflix and Amazon and what they're producing. Really, very fundamental big changes are happening in real time. And he's he's also been through the award season uh, wheel, that grind before, and he has thoughts on that scene as well. So strap in a fascinating conversation with one of the biggest names in movies in this country and around the world. Robert Lantos on Art at the End of the World. What's your car? What is the well, guy? They range from. I have a convertible electric smart car. So not today. Like to, not today. I got I got a ride from somebody. Right. So today I have no car here. Right. Fair enough. But then when it's snowing like that, that that's not a good idea. So then I drive a Range Rover. Nice. How are you doing this moment in your career where 
I would imagine it's not as it used to be, or maybe not quite the, the same cycle. How do you look at that at this point in your career? Do you say, I, I'm going to slow down the projects, I'm going to keep going at a pace that I'm comfortable with? What do you think about Well, I mean, you know, my career is essentially divided into three chapters. Chapter one was, wow, <laughs> I can make movies. Yeah. And I, I was, you know, I went, I studied film in school and... And I started a little distribution company, not because I knew anything about distribution, but I figured that would be maybe a way into the film business, into making movies, because back then in Canada, there were very few being made at all. And right. uh, to try and find a way in, I came up with this idea of film distribution, and, and that for the first couple of years. And then I made my first film, uh, which was came together through a bunch of magic and, and trickery and, and, and it's called L'Ange et la Femme starring Carol Orr who was a big star back then I had just been in an Oscar winning film called Get Out Your Handkerchiefs and it was directed by the late Gilles Carl and it was made for no money at all in 16 millimeters in black and white but feature film and uh, then after that came In Praise of Older Women which amazingly turned into a worldwide hit uh, and uh, lo and behold, I was making movies, which I, you know, seemed like um, a fantasy just a couple of years earlier. I've, I've had a couple of minutes before you arrived to wander around your studios and to see these posters and to see the many, many, many awards on your walls. And it does feel like it's sort of an inspiring place to sit. It must be for, for young filmmakers and so on who come in here and maybe get a chance to speak with you and see all that's happened here. Well, <clears throat> my advice to wannabe filmmakers is find another career. So um, I'm not necessarily the most inspiring person to talk to because the you know, film as, I, as it has been, as it was, and uh, when I started is kind of dying. So uh, beaten out by superhero movies about People who fly and put out fires with their eyes and lift high-rises with their fingertips, which occupy most of the real estate and movie theaters on the one hand, and the streaming services on the other, which keep grown-ups at home. So between those two, uh, in the kind of film that I like, cinema, as, as opposed to um, video games on the screen, um, that is uh, on its deathbed. So those who are serious about cinema, I kind of advise them to do something else. But coming back to your initial question, my first chapter was that, you know, oh wow, I can actually make movies. And that took, that sort of took me from my mid-20s until my mid-30s. And then at that point, I, was, I got married, and I had a couple of children, and I came to the realization that I living, uh, making independent films at that point really meant living at the edge of the precipice and hoping to be able to pay rent and the staff long enough in between projects to survive, which didn't bother me at all in my 20s. It was just the sheer exhilaration of it that was the only thing that mattered. But then 
As I got into my mid-30s, I actually had to f try and figure out how I could create some stability with which to support a family. And that led to chapter two, which was the forming of Alliance, which was the merger of three Canadian companies, two production companies and a distribution company. And together, for the first time in this country, we had the girth and the leverage to actually get a bank line of credit, which was unheard of, and uh, be able to um, to function as a no, as a, actually as a studio, as opposed to an occasional producer. We we branched out into television, which was um, and this was now we're talking about the mid '80s and. We ended up uh, having cable networks and movie theaters and expanded outside of Canada into the, into the US and the UK and built a company that eventually I took public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Those years, which were from my um, mid-30s until my late 40s, some 14, 15 years, I was, those, those years were spent mostly building a company and something that on a level at which had never been done in Canada in the entertainment industry and uh, becoming a global player and as part of that I had to walk back from the day-to-day nitty-gritty of producing mm -hmm. and the creative process and learn how to run a business and how to run a publicly traded company and with all of the headaches that that comes with that. So we became extremely prolific. Making movies was a very small part of what we were doing. We made two, three, one, two, sometimes three movies a year. Sure. But mostly what we made is um, sometimes as much as 100 hours of television drama a year. And we became a formidable distribution company, often becoming having the number one market share in Canada ahead of Warner Brothers and Fox and Disney. So really building the machinery, the back, building backbone a real, of this a, thing. A real infrastructure for yeah. a business, something that had never been done in, in the in the content entertainment world in this country. And Did you prefer that challenge over the day-to-day nitty-gritty of movie making? No, not at all, but it was essential. It had to be done. I right. mean, it was the only way I could, and my partners could think of, how can we convert our lives from being kind of, you know, an independent producer is a very fancy euphemism. Mm -hmm. And it, well, it stands for beggar. It's independent producer is someone who goes hat in hand, looking for financing wherever he might he or she might find it regardless of what cost uh, in order to make the next film yeah and so to convert from that into running a successful profitable business with predictability and sustainability that's a big leap and you did crave that you wanted uh, once that I had for a you. family and kids, <laughs> yeah. I felt that I had no choice. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I had lots of mouths to feed. Right. Um, and elderly parents. So I had, um, I had a lot of people depending on me. Once in a while, I made a movie that came from the heart. During that period, for example... I don't, okay, Black Robe was... I mean, they're all great films that we're looking at here. Well, Eastern Promises, Sunshine. That was made later. Sweet Hereafter. Sweet Hereafter was made during that time, yeah. as was Black Robe. Those were films from the heart, but they really were a tiny part of the business of Alliance. Um, Did you have to switch your brain over to find that heart in your day 
find room for that heart for it those was, for I, that love a, of storytelling absolutely no time in my day for <laughs> any of that it was in my nights <laughs> right uh, reading screenplays and uh, looking at the daily uh, the dailies and rough cuts and uh, the kind of thing that a film that you really care about requires that would be after 11 p.m. Yeah. Uh, at home um, that was the night shift the day shift was occupied but how's sleeping with all that I mean, it's 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 uh, reduced to uh, it's not eight hours a night. No, no, <laughs> that was the case for many years. Right, that was phase two, chapter two. I said that is my you know career is divided into three chapters, until I sold Alliance or my controlling interest in Alliance, right, right. which was in now it's twenty one years ago, nineteen ninety eight, uh, and that brought brings us to chapter three, and which is for the past twenty years. I have I reverted back to the way the place where I started, which is making films, um, not really television, with maybe one exception, but mostly films that mattered to me one way or another, not necessarily in the same way, but films that I truly cared for and that inspired me, and that I hope would inspire others, knowing fully well that the kind of films I was making or cinema, as I like to call it, sure. uh, was not going to appeal to the mass market, was not going to be competitive with, uh, with X-Men's next installment or the next Batman or the next uh, Marvel comic, the next disaster movie. That, that, that wasn't the world for which I was gunning. But let, let me ask you about that, because Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola have uh, seen some trouble online for their comments. They got dirty with the, their comments on men in tights. And I've seen different interviews with you over the years where you've, you've mentioned it. But actually, this is the, the most, uh, you know, <laughs> this is uh, the strongest language I've heard you use about that genre of film. And so it is a thorn in your side, maybe not in a, a financial capacity, but it bothers you in an artistic capacity. Well, first of all, I think <clears throat> you're being supremely flattering by referring to these concoctions as film. They're not films. That's pr pretty much what Scorsese said, and I fully agree. They are something, and by all means, those who want to see them, go see them. But they're not films. They are more clear, closer to being uh, video games blown up on the big screen. And they have very little to do with acting, with character development, with plausible storytelling, with uh, relevance to the human condition. Nothing to do with any of the above which is what cinema is. They have a lot more to do with finding new ways to, to deliver some kind of vicarious thrill to the average 17-year-old every 90 seconds through special effects and digital effects, explosions, car crashes, and plane crashes, and various uh, derivatives of all of that. Do you have thoughts on how we got there, on how this happened? Because it now seems to run the movie plexes. I mean, this is Absolutely. What, what gets people oh, into it's, those it's, buildings. Uh, I don't have the exact statistics because nobody does, but right. I would venture to guess that uh, the superhero genre is probably 80 to 90% of worldwide box office. So, right. yeah. Right. I was speaking with Cameron Bailey about 
his relationship with Netflix and they're happy to take something like the Irishman and make the little bit of money they can have from a two three week run before it goes to Netflix and a lot of the types of films that you've made over the years I can imagine that would be a, a, you know a, a place where they might end up in the modern day I mean it's a very difficult moment. We're seeing a, a year at Oscar where Netflix might actually take home a Best Picture statue. So what's your gauge on that? Are you optimistic about it at all? Or, or where, does, where do you stand on the streaming world we live in? I have mixed feelings about Not about the streaming world. I think it's a tremendous convenience and uh, creates a plethora of choices. Mm-hmm. I have mixed that? feelings about great cinema ending up on tiny screens. Most people watch the streamers on their laptops or iPads or on their cell phones. And I find that, you know, it's an unfortunate way to, to it's an unfortunate way to premiere some, a great work of art. So I have mixed feelings about great films not being designed and designed to movie theaters, not designed for movie theaters, and not they're designed for movie theaters. I mean, The Irishman is designed, Roma is designed for a movie. For I'm movie very glad theaters. I saw both those films in the theater. Well, I mean, so and I. I tell people that. So am I. Yeah. And watching them, and then watching them afterwards on on a tiny screen, <laughs> um, I I find um, it's a, uh, almost an aberration because you miss. I mean, you miss most of what the films are really about. You miss the beauty of them, right. the poetry. Yeah. The actual art does not truly translate into a tiny screen because it wasn't shot for that tiny screen. I regret the fact that, uh, you know, the, that frankly, that Netflix in particular is contributing to the demise of the cinema experience, which is more of in a way they are kind of helping the superhero movies take even more real estate and more ground as the great films end up not playing in theaters at all. Going to a movie theater in proper conditions and with a quality screen and good sound, which is not always the case, but going to a movie theater in proper conditions is uh, non, it's not an experience you can duplicate sitting at home alone, watch or with two people watching a tiny screen in between making phone calls and standing up for a, to, to get a sandwich and, uh, and maybe also looking at your computer while you're at it or watching a basketball game, right. and, you know, which is not unusual. It's, it's, it's a disrespectful way of watching great art. So it fills me with sadness that the collective experience of seeing a great film on the big screen is being consigned to superhero blown up video games. Let me ask you uh, about, I got a little window into your life while I was here. Obviously, I I took a look around your office. Uh, I know you have an event to be at as soon as we're done, and I know you're flying back and forth all the time. For me, if I can empathize with your life for a moment, I might look at it and go, it must be exciting to go to Los Angeles, and it must be exciting to have that lunch with a friend and talk about the movie you're going to make. I'm sure in your 20s, it was, it was all those things, and I'm wondering if that, there's still a thrill in it for you to play a part in that life and, and have that life. Uh, the, truth, the truthful answer to that is not really. <laughs> Um, 
It's uh, I crave. So why? Why? Why do you? Why do you continue then? Why does an alcoholic drink? Right. <laughs> this is the it's thing. an addiction. Yeah. Um, I have. I'm trying to wean myself off. Yeah. Um, so far, without much success, but but I'm determined to get there. Right. Just like the alcoholic is determined to not so, so the hot restaurant on the strip or something like that, that's no longer an appeal, uh, you know, to go have that lunch with that person and talk about the movie you're going to make and maybe enjoy some sunshine in the, in the middle of a Canadian winter. But the sunshine is open. You'll take that. I'll take the sunshine. <laughs> I couldn't care less about the rest. Like, I don't go to the Oscars or Oscar parties unless I have a film in contention. That's the only time I'll go. I mean, I don't Are those fun? Do you, do you have any fun at those If times? you have a film, yeah. if you have a dog in the race, right. yes, because you just might win. It's also I, a different. It feels very different, the awards race right now. It feels like there's a lot of pressure you know, to fulfill certain needs of what's going on culturally as well as what's happening. Well, there's two things going on in the awards business, and neither of them is particularly uh, pretty from my point of view. Mm -hmm. One is that awards are more and more being purchased. I mean, Netflix is spending, no one knows exactly, but whether it's 30 or $40 million just on the Oscar campaign of Irishman. And there was just um, a story about them flying reporters around and so oh on. Oh, no, they'll so spend, yeah. you know, so between their various contending films, they'll spend $100 million just trying to buy the Oscar. So there is that. And, you know, people used to criticize Harvey Weinstein in his Miramax days. They used to accuse him of buying the Oscars because he was spending five, six million dollars on an awards campaign, which at that time was unheard of. Right. Because prior to Miramax, the major studios who dom used to dominate the Academy Awards, they would spend a few hundred thousand dollars uh, on an Oscar campaign. And then along came Weinstein, and he would he upped the ante to five, six million, and he was accused of buying the Oscars. Well, that's like, now it's like a flea compared to what Netflix is doing. Uh, so there is that. I mean, there is a, you, can, you can purchase the awards if you spend enough money and you have a half de a decent film. Uh, you can persuade the voters. Uh, you can certainly begin by persuading the media, and then the media in turn do your job and they persuade the voters. That's one, that's one thing that's going on. And the other thing that's going on is that, and it's been going on now for a few years, is that the quality of a film is completely eclipsed by its level of political correctness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for a film to be in the running for major awards, it has to fit the current flavor of what is considered absolutely politically correct. So there was a big to-do that there were no women directors in the Golden Globe nominations. Difficult moment, because then you start to ask, okay, well, did enough films get made by women? Was there something truly great made by a woman? You know, and, and uh, it does start to, to have that greater conversation. I don't think it can be so narrow to say we just have to put a, a female director in that category. Yeah, I've heard some really absurd yeah. suggestions. Actually, one female director who I won't name suggested that there should be a separate category right. for women directors, which I think is the most insulting thing you could possibly say to women. You can't, you have to compete separately. Look, we live in a world, not necessarily the world, but the media world and certainly the film world where being politically correct is infinitely more important than being artistically excellent. And so whether, and that applies to gender, subgender, and sub-subgender, and skin color, ethnicity, 
All of those things, they all eclipse artistic quality. Artistic quality comes not second, but whatever, seventh or eighth. So, am I thrilled about that? Probably from the tone of my voice, you could detect that I don't think that it's a healthy environment. I wonder, but then I'll be accused of being a middle-aged white man. Well, I wasn't. I'm glad you said it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, but that's the greatest sin of all. That's, uh, it seems that's to like be. That's like being born a criminal. You know? Well, in, uh, in, in the last five years or so. Or middle-aged white men, especially heterosexual middle-aged white men. Right. I mean, you, 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 you basically you're... It's uh, amazing you, we're even talking right now. You know, you've been charged, tried, and sentenced. Not sure what the crime is, but you're a criminal. One of the elements I find when speaking to creative people, especially if have the success on the level that you have, um, whether it's been Wayne Mangesha, who, who I just spoke to a couple of weeks ago, she uh, left Ethiopia during war times <clears throat> there. Um, Cameron Bailey moved around a lot as a kid and went through different things. And just looking at your history, uh, you moved from Hungary to Uruguay to Canada, and it's fairly serious business as to why you're doing that and your family is doing that. There's a revolution in your home country. Your family uproots. What, what does that install in a young person, and, and do you think it contributed <clears throat> to the man you are today and the success you've enjoyed? Well, the first eight years of my life were spent in Budapest, where I was born, and I felt very much um, at home. And I knew everybody and the language, and I was completely comfortable. Uh, and then when we emigrated and we ended up in Montevideo in Uruguay, I knew no one, and I couldn't speak the language. And turned out I was the only Jew in my school, uh, which uh, I don't know how that came to light, but it did. Which, um, and so uh, I became very much an outcast and an outsider. And so and I stayed that way pretty much ever since. Now, so I, but the, I learned some in, in that immigration, and then we came to Canada some six years later. And through all that, again, I knew no one. I couldn't speak English or French. Um, and we lived in a Francophone world. My word. Um, so it, I was, you know, I went to, I remember going to my first school dance at Northmount High in Montreal. And um, all the boys were, uh, they were wearing, you know, wearing their bobby socks and uh, many of them driving their parents' car and uh, dancing and, and jitty-bugging with the pretty girls. And uh, I and a few other recent new immigrants who, never mind, Jitty-bugging, we didn't even speak English. Right. Or, uh, <laughs> didn't have the of, dance step or the words. Kind of stood by the wall and watched and yeah. also didn't have car access to my parents' car because they didn't have a car. So uh, it was very much the, being, the, being the outsider, which, I always, which I, for a long time I thought this was a tremendous liability. And I felt that, you know, uh, I, it, it, I felt kind of a sense of, uh, it made me feel insecure and, sure. and inferior and not good enough. And then, see, at one point I realized, you see, that actually being the outsider is an asset. And uh, it's an asset because it allows me to see things from a perspective that is not enslaved by the collective fad of the day. And by that, I learned three extremely important skills during these kind of um, tumultuous emigrations and immigrations um, and massive changes in my life and my environment um, and watching my parents struggle to try and make enough money so that they could pay the rent and feed us, yeah. which they did with great difficulty. 
I learned three incredibly irreplaceable skills that have served me my whole life. The first one was I learned first I learned when to fight. I also learned when that's learned a tough. To fight. That's a very tough skill for well, people I, to learn. I, I, I learned to fight, and I had to learn to fight because I often was in fights, especially in Uruguay, for because I was. We're talking physical fights, or just when to turn on the gas? No, physical fights. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my very first day in school in Montevideo, I uh, I found myself in a fight with six guys, but I didn't know why. But um, I it it. During the first recess, during the first day of school, uh, I was, I, 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 it was a hot day and my mother dressed me, so I ended up going to school the way a, the way a boy, in, an eight-year-old an eight would go to school in Hungary on a hot day in short pants and I had long hair, so she put a bobby pin in my hair to keep it from falling into my eyes. And uh, I was the only one in the, in the school who was wearing short pants and had bobby pins in his hair. Um, so there you were. And I couldn't speak a word of the language. And so <laughs> So at, the, at, at recess, as I was standing in the hallway, um, a, a boy came up to me and uh, took my hand and kind of did a gesture which I can't replicate on the radio, but it was like one hand cutting the other. And he said the words, corta para la salida, which means essentially, it means that we're making a date for after school, but it was a date to fight. Right. I didn't know that. Right. So when the second and the third one came over to do the same thing, I actually thought they were being friendly. It must be their version of a handshake. So, it's heartbreaking. But after school, as I was walking to where I was told I had to take the bus to get to my uncle and aunt's place, which is where I was living for the first year, because uh, my parents only had a one-room apartment with, which didn't have a bathroom. So uh, I didn't live with them for a year in Montevideo. I lived with relatives. So I knew how to take the bus to get there, but I was walking to the bus stop, these six guys who I had agreed to fight with after school followed me. Right. And um, they ride to the bus stop where, since I didn't see any reason to have a fight, nevertheless, <laughs> they did. Uh, so I got all beaten up that day, and that's when you know that skill began to develop. But I was I was. What saying, are you eight nine years old at that? Point? I was eight. There were three essential skills. Learning to fight was one of them. Physical fight. Right. The second one was also learning when to run. Run equally important because when there are six guys behind you, it's best to run. I didn't know that the first time, but right. I knew that soon after. Right. There were times when running was the best solution, and you have to learn how to run fast, so they can catch you. And then the third thing was to know when to run and when to fight, which skill to use when. Those three things served me for the rest of my life. You are listening to Art at the End of the World. My name is Mark Wigmore. My conversation with Robert Lantos continues in a moment. You're listening to the Zoomer Podcast Network. Mark Wigmore with you on Art at the End of the World. Let's get back to my talk with the legendary filmmaking force in this country and around the world, Robert Lantos. It's interesting to me, you mentioned uh, the NFB. You've, you've worked with the NFB, you've worked with the CBC, uh, TIFF. Big organizations where people climb this ladder. Well, I never worked with the NFB. Okay, right. Uh, but uh, you, you applied. I, I, I had a job interview. You applied for the job. And you, you went to school and so on. You didn't do the ladder thing. You did not, 
you know, go through the, the rungs, as far as I can tell from what I've learned of your history. You looked at that. They told you, hey, you're going to need to be doing, you know, being a part of this organization for a long time before we ever give you the opportunity to do the types of things that you want to do. So it's interesting to me that you've that you have been affiliated with some of these big organizations, and yet you you buck very much buck the system in your own way. Well, I never worked for them, right? But you were you were part of the uh, you were on the board with the CBC. I was you? on the CBC board, right? I mean, there's no greater ladder structure. I worked for the CBC for six years. I, I mean, I know how that is. Certainly, you know, TIFF is a big organization too. And yet you very much carved your own pathway and, and did things your own way. Look, I, I realized I had to do that at that interview with the National Film Board of Canada. Right. I will tell you, I'll digress for a second and give you the backstory of the interview. So I was in graduate school at McGill studying what was called communications, which is part of the English department, film and communications. One of the courses, by far the most interesting course, was a graduate seminar in film. There were only seven of us in that seminar, and it was, the professor was John Grierson. John Grierson coined the word documentary. He founded the National Film Board of Canada. He, but this was late in his life, and he gave this course from his hotel room at the hotel on Crescent Street in Montreal. They didn't like going on the campus. And um, he would sometimes get us drunk while telling us stories. Um, and it was, anyway, it was a Good very- teacher-student Absolutely there. perfect, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably end up in jail if he did that today. Sure. But, um, sure, he and, would. Uh, so at, at, the end of, uh, the, at, at the end of the year, uh, he turned to the seven of us and he asked each of us well, you know, what we plan to do now that we are finishing our master's degree. And everybody had different plans and ambitions. And when he came to me, I said very... I said, what I'd like to do is ask you, uh, I would like you to set up an interview for me at the National Film Board. And he, he said, and what are you going to tell them? And I, say, I said, I'm going to tell them that I want to, I want to write, direct, and produce. And, and he says, and why would they hire you to do that? I said, well, I'm going to show them my student films and my, uh, my thesis, and, and you're going to write me a spectacular letter of reference, aren't you? He said, I'll do that. And I'll set up the interview, but I, I give you, I'll only give you one word of advice. If you actually want to get a job there, apply for a job as a driver, fill out the form, go to the receptionist, ask for a form, because they have a very high turnover. Sooner or later, you'll get a call. Uh, I, I said, I, I, first of all, I hate driving. I'm not good at it, and I have no interest in doing that. I would like to, to set up a meeting for me, a proper interview. He said, okay, and he did, and I met with the then commissioner of the... The, the film commissioner, the head of the National Film Board, who, because it was John Grierson who had set up the meeting, he received me with, he fed me high tea and cookies in his office. And then he said, and he, he listened to me while I told him uh, what I wanted to do and about my various student projects. And he very patiently and politely sat and let me talk for half an hour. And then when I finished talking, he said, come with me and follow me. And it took me along the hallways of, in Montreal, National Film Board, these kind of very gray, hospital-looking hallway. <laughs> right. um, to, from, and he would knock on doors and open doors. And behind each door, there was usually somebody sitting in, behind his desk. And uh, he would say, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so, and this is an Oscar winner for an animated short, and this is so-and-so. And he gave me this whole tour. 
And then when he finished, he took me back to his office. He sat me down and says, all the people you've just met, see, they're all waiting for their turn for their next film. What the hell do you think gives you the slightest uh, the right to, to walk in here and say you want to write, direct, and produce just because you know John Grierson? And that was the end of that interview. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I love that story, and, and, I, and I, that's that's when I decided, okay, it's not going to happen for me by filling by through job interviews and filling out forms, right? And so I'm very curious, what was the the thinking there? What was the next step where you thought, okay, I am going to have to figure out my own pathway and somehow do this on my own without this typical process in play? What what were the first moves? <laughs> I was still in school when the first move happened. It was pretty much around this time. Um, I saw an ad in the Village Voice. It was advertising something called the first ever New York Erotic Film Festival with a jury headed by Andy Warhol <laughs> and others on the jury were Gore Vidal and Milos Forman and it's like the best cocktail party in town right there. Sylvia Miles and the feminist painter Betty Dotson. That's those are the ones I remember. And uh, it was uh, an ad to ask of independent filmmakers. And at the time, they were called experimental and underground filmmakers to submit their films. And I thought, and there's going to be an, and I followed up and discovered there's going to be a, there was going to be a big opening night event in New York at the Continental Baths, uh, and I somehow, I'm, I'm not sure how, conned the defunct, now defunct Montreal Star and CBC Radio, which uh, with a late night show on CBC Radio, to chip in and send me to New York to cover the opening night party of the New York Erotic Film Festival. Mm -hmm which took place in this swimming pool of, the, of a bath of this bathhouse with the films being uh, projected on the ceiling and most of the people present in the pool and various other stages of undress, <laughs> and including Andy Wall, but he was, no, he was fully dressed right. with a boa constrictor around his neck. Wow. A live boa constrictor. <laughs> so it was, a, it was kind of a zoo that maybe couldn't be duplicated or even imagined today. Um, and uh, when I was there, I had this idea that if somehow I could bring this to Canada, everybody I know is going to want to be part of it. And I know I had to go about doing that, but that was sort of, I eventually did. And that was the first thing I ever did. And to help, I, but I didn't have the money to pay for the rights to bring this New York Erotic Film Festival to Canada. But I signed an agreement while I was there that I was going to, and they, they gave me some 30 days to pay. Uh, and during those 30 days, I kind of ran around to try and raise uh, $12,000. And the last missing part of, um, actually came from your CEO, Moses Neimer, which was actually my first ever business deal because uh, of my, uh, the late Stephen Roth, who was my friend and became my partner, said to me, you know, I have, this, I have a friend in Toronto who's starting a TV station and he's doing some crazy stuff and why don't maybe he'll... Maybe he'll want to put this on the air. So I took the train to Toronto from Montreal, and uh, I went to see Moses. On the old As so many have. <laughs> and, I, and he, uh, he said, well, let's see this. And yeah. He had a projection, a projector, 16-millimeter projector, in his, somewhere in his office. And the projectionist was the late Brian Lenahan. Watched these shorts. 
uh, some of them two minutes long, about two sneakers who end up having sex and making a third sneaker, and <laughs> some of them 20 minutes long. And, and after about an hour of this, he said, okay, how much money do you want? And so I said, I need $6,000 for the rights to run this on television. Boy, I didn't care what rights, I just needed $6,000. And he said, okay. And I said, this is one thing I needed like today. Because uh, I, had, I hadn't paid for the rights. Right. <laughs> You're really hustling. Yeah. So he sent someone to a bank and they came back with a check. I love it. And. Uh, that was sort of, if you ask me at the beginning, well, that was the humble beginning. So if we, if we are watching a, an Adam McGoyan film or a Cronenberg film, we can think to ourselves, it all started with this strange erotic film festival that uh, came to Canada, thanks to a you. A bunch of shorts, which yeah. actually were first shown at McGill University, because I, 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 I couldn't get a movie theater. I tried, but um, I didn't know how to go about that. I walked down St. Catherine Street in Montreal and went into the old movie palaces which no longer exist and asked for the manager and said I'd like to play I had this can of 16 millimeter film under my arm and I, I said I'd like to play this here and they would say get the hell out of here. Isn't youth wonderful that you, you wander around and you just logic dictates that yeah, I'll just wander into the cinema. Into the movie theater. That's but how it, you do it right? It didn't work out that way but <laughs> it didn't work well but McGill which where I was the vice president to a student council and my best friend was the president, and we had a lot of sway about what went on at McGill. There, yeah. you see, I knew I worked. So that's where it first played that, uh, and sold out, and people were scalping tickets. And that's when I knew, okay, this is going to work. Uh, we were selling tickets for $2 a piece. We had three showings back to back, and we sold out the third show before the first show began. And then by the time the third show was on, people were scalping tickets for 10 bucks, five times what we sold them for. That's why I knew that this is, we got something. We got something, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned the apprenticeship. By the way, I think Moses got busted later on for playing the New York Erotic Film Festival. He put it on City TV in Toronto uh -huh. on a Friday at midnight. He got busted by the Vice Squad. We, more in Toronto used to have a Vice Squad, a Morality Squad it was called. Right. And they, they, come, they, they, that, they, they busted them and they ended up, in, of course, in headlines in, across the country. TV station gets busted for obscenity. And then a trial where the judge dismissed the case and uh, said, you're wasting the court's time to right. the police. But that kind of helped uh, make the tiny little city TV became a lot better known after that. I bet, yeah. And of course, wasn't he sort of known for putting on these like blue light? Well, that's what it was. Baby yeah. blue. The baby, baby blue. Baby blue. Yeah. Friday. That's where this was. Right. I'm looking at uh, Barney's version, the poster here, and uh, I'm thinking back to the apprenticeship of Dodi Kravitz because I know that was a, a bit of a template for you as far as what you thought was possible within the Canadian landscape of filmmaking. And it seems like you followed that model a lot, where you got great Canadian talent, producers, directors, and so on, and somehow would bring in, you know, a Hollywood star or two and, and kind of have them be the face of it. And that's how it's, it seems like a lot of these films came to life. Well, what you just said is, is very accurate and, and, and perceptive, because The Apprenticeship of Dottie Kravis, which I saw when I was still at the university, I was just, it was kind of around the time I was finishing, and I, the film was playing at the Placeville Marie Theatre in Montreal, and uh, I thought, wow, this is a Canadian film. This can be done here. 
can be done. That was the first time I thought I saw a Canadian film that, to me, felt an English Canadian, French Canadians. I've seen lots, of, but an English Canadian film that actually was as good or better than anything Hollywood had to offer. And that was an inspiration. And 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 you know, the deliciousness of fate is that. Many years later, the producer of The Apprenticeship of Dirty Kravitz, the late John Kemeny, became my partner. And when we founded Alliance, with the coming together of three companies, one of those companies was called ICC, and it, the owners of it were John Kemeny and Denis Eru. You know, Kemeny had been kind of my model, my inspiration when I was, when I was, when I was still in film school. So it was a nice twist of fate. It is a wonderful story. And then everything that happens after that. I, tell me about, I mean, David, I think, was just sort of part of the Toronto scene, part of the Canadian scene. When Adam came on into your radar and, and you were starting to see what he was capable of, what was it about him? Because I feel like every film of his, there's a hill to climb, but there's just this wonderful artistic payoff. Almost every film you see that, that he directs and you two have worked together a lot we also drank a copious amount of wine together last night uh, <laughs> very good wine so here we are. well good uh, getty lee would have loved to yeah, get was, in on get in on that yeah it was uh, adam david don mckellar francois gerard a couple of others and i and uh, that sounds like a hell of a party it was, it was a very seriously committed consumption <laughs> <laughs> Restaurant or house? How at does my, that? At my house. Ah, see, smart. <laughs> Supplied by my seller. <laughs> but um, but you obviously saw in him a very specific. Well, I I, I first heard of him um, because I had to read out his name, never having seen his film. He was nominated for what was then called the Genie Award for family viewing, and uh, now the Canadian Screen has yeah, we, as we know. Yeah. Canadian Screen Awards. Right. And I was the chairman of the Academy, and the year was 1985. And the nominations were announced at the Sutton Place Hotel in the ballroom. And as chairman, it was my, it fell upon me to announce the nominees, among others, for best director. So there was this name I couldn't pronounce, which uh, it's, like my, it's like my whole life in classical music. Trust me, <laughs> that's, all I, that's all I deal with. Yeah. Well, for a name I couldn't pronounce for a film I'd never, never mind seen but heard of. I think it was family viewing, so I pronounced his name wrong, uh, and um, that's where we met. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that started it all. And and just a very specific way of of telling a story and. I, I just uh, I'm in great admiration of what the two of you have been able to do over the last 20, 25 years. So thank you for that because they have been well, thank wonderful. You. Yeah, <laughs> All right. I will if it I'm should the I enabler get the, get the chance. When do you have to step in to st- put a stop to something to to change an element of a film? Is that something that you find yourself doing? I prefer to make the film before making the film. I prefer to talk through all of the various major decisions that go into the making of a film from the nuances of the screenplay and the casting, the choice of department heads and 
major locations and all of those and then later on comes the editing which is the third time you make a film. For me the first time you make a film is when with the director you collaborate and you and it takes time. It often takes a year or several years uh, as you kind of meditate on the film together. Uh, what film is it that we're going to make? During the actual filming process if I have to step in that's not good news. It has happened, but that means there's a problem. Yeah. Um, I, because at that point, they're in a, unlike television, which and where the director is really a traffic cop, uh, in film, in cinema, that uh, it's the director's vision that counts when you're making the film. Uh, so I hopefully don't have to step in. I give, you know, I, I observe and I share my point of view and opinions and with the director but that's it and there are exceptions and those are usually the problematic ones right. and then the third time you make a film is in the editing room and there I like to be very much present do you like to be around for that yeah yeah I mean I, I don't know I mean, you would know better than than I do but do you find many producers who get involved in that part of the process? Is that pretty typical? Or do you feel like I, you just you like to be part of that vision and that rhythm? I can only answer for myself because yeah. there's no, you know, they, 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 the title producer. I know, I, I, and I do need to be careful with that. Once upon a time meant something. We sure. all knew what it meant. Even when I first started making films, some well over some well unbelievable but 45 years ago sure uh, I, I actually knew what it meant but in in the inter in, in the interval it is um, it's 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 a word that really could mean anything it could mean that you're the manager of the movie's star and so in order to get the star they kind of bribed you with a producer credit it could mean that you you inherited a lot of money from a wealthy father and so you can write big checks so you can become a producer that way it could mean that you are a person who works on so something called the line producer, which means that you have no involvement in the creative side of things or the financial side, but you are very much hands-on, the nitty-gritty of running a budget and running a crew. It could mean that. Or it could mean what it once upon a time it meant, which is that you are a filmmaker who looks at the process of making the film from the vantage point of its ultimate destination, which is the audience. Mm -hmm. And so you participate organically in the process from the beginning of the writing of the screenplay until the film is in theaters. But you participate in the process creatively, but f you shift perspective. So you, your perspective is that of how this is going to be viewed by those who it's being made for. That's actually what a producer was and and that, and that's what and obviously I'm you, old school I still am yeah mm. so you like you see yourself in in that in that role and and that's what you've done is be that person who takes it from idea to final product and really be there in that relationship but from a somewhat shifted perspective yeah which is it's not the director's perspective the director is focused on his or her vision my mission is to focus on how it's going that the, the and the result of that is going to be perceived by those it's being made for if it doesn't reach its audience then 
it's futile. Mm-hmm. If you're a writer, the writing in itself, or a sculptor or a painter, the mission in itself is its own destination. Whether it reaches millions of people or or, or, or the only ones who actually see it or read it are your closest friends. That's just a measure of success, but you can still be making great art, which is why so much great art sometimes is only celebrated after the artist has, has died. Yes, I, I, that's also part of my classical job. <laughs> we, we, so many men have just ended up paupers, and then we celebrate them 100 years right, later. We know who they are, at yeah, least right, some of them. Right. But film is not like that. Right. Uh, film, if it doesn't find its... If, if, if no one sees it, then it is a futile exercise. I want to get into Song of Names. And why this story? Uh, what spoke to you to say, I want people to see the Song of Names? Well, first I read the novel by Norman Lebrecht, who I'm sure you know of. He's one of the world's most distinguished classical music scholars. Yeah. Uh, in some circles, his name is received with fear and trembling. Right. Um, <laughs> I was taken by the story of this book, uh, but a good story, uh, uh, certainly at my stage of life and career, is not enough of a reason to make a film. There are a lot of good stories. This particular good story had something else within it that I found irresistibly compelling, and that was that in, in this story about friendship and betrayal and reconciliation set in the world of classical music, there was a way that Norman Lebrecht uh, provided the reader with of remembering the, the genocidal horror of the Holocaust and without actually visiting the events themselves. And he did that by creating this, what we call the Song of Names. And so that through a piece of music, which reveals the actual mystery of this story, it is where through this piece of music that the revelations come as to what happened to our one of our two protagonists mm-hmm. who disappears on the eve of his first solo concert. What happened to him and why? I found in that I found that so intriguing because I thought it would, it would give us an give me an opportunity to remember and to give others a way of remembering something that must never be forgotten because the only way we can avoid the tragedies of the past is by never forgetting them. It was memory. It was remembering. But a, a way of remembering that had not re- been done before in, a, in any film I'd ever seen, and that intrigued me. Uh, but that was further compounded by the environment in which we live today. And perhaps I would have been less compelled 25 years ago. But yeah. Today, we, uh, you know, I am the son of two Holocaust survivors. I grew up with the story of the Holocaust pretty much from my mother's milk. Um, Your and, parents were comfortable talking about it. I mean, some parents weren't comfortable talking about it. Mine were. My other members of my family were not, but my parents were. And not at first, because I didn't even know I was Jewish until I was eight years old. uh, So that was was not talked about then. But later on, yes. It was assumed by those who lived through all that and those who are the descendants of survivors that 
that what led to the mass murder of six million Jews was something of the past, that it could never happen again, and that that lesson had been learned forever and ingrained forever in the collective memory of humankind. Um, that turned out to be false optimism. And uh, as Jew hatred has been sweeping across Europe now for the past couple of decades and gathering more momentum each day, and it has leapfrogged across the Atlantic and is certainly, and it's a cancer that's spreading on most campuses across North America uh, under various different sort of labels like the BDS movement or anti-Zionism, all of which are thinly disguised versions of, of the same thing. Plus ça change, plus ça reste le même. So as, and that's the environment in which we live today. And because of that, and specifically because of that, uh, I feel motivated to do whatever I can, which is not very much, but I do have some resources and some skills so I don't I'm not you, limited to you, making donations to 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 Jewish organizations I can be more useful by making a film that hopefully will reach a significant number of people and through a well-told tale and emotionally compelling tale remind people where the road of hatred leads you then must believe that this art form can be an agent of change that even with the watered-down cinematic world that we live in now, that this story being out in the world does something and means something and can change hearts and minds. I, I, yes, I do believe that. I think that uh, you know, I, I, I am not wildly optimistic about uh, about the number about reaching a mass market in the superhero world with a film about friendship and betrayal uh, and reconciliation and classical music. I, but you are I, compelled. I do believe that between movie theaters and eventually um, the streaming and, and iTunes and various digital platforms, the film will be seen by millions, one way or another. It packs an, an emotional punch. It does. Um, and the theme of it is universal. I think that it will have an impact on those who see it. The idea of uh, remembrance through music, through song, is just a, a wonderful notion in this film, and I couldn't agree with you more that uh, I think, you know, we don't want to give too much away about what people are going to experience, but that is a, a great part of this film. So we've got uh, violin music, uh, jumping through time and location, great cast, Francois Girard, uh, an outstanding score. I think you can see where I'm going here. Uh, if we like the Oscar award-winning film, The Red Violin, uh, this is, I, I would say, something of a companion piece. I mean, it, it deals with classical music and so on and so forth, but very much its own story and, and lives in its own world, even though there may be some comparisons, even great stars. You must have looked at that, that former film and thought, okay, We've got a lot of the same ingredients here that are... Well, look, there, there are two people who, well, really three people, who were the essential architects of this film. After I read the book, I then discovered there, was a, there had been a screenplay adaptation of it written by Jeffrey Kane, who's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. And uh, I then got a hold of the rights to the screenplay uh, and 
first the book then the script and then I sent it to Francois Girard the reason why was because I never worked with Francois I knew him but Yes, he directed the Red Violin and also 32 short films about Glenn Gould, and and he I, he's equally and also the Yo-Yo I film on Yo-Yo Ma, and he had his classical chops, and for he sure. is as comfortable in the world of the opera and and as he is in the world of film. He was the one person I actually knew, one filmmaker I knew who is equally at home in the language of classical music as he is in the language of cinema. So Isis was simply the first person that came to mind as I was reading this. So I, I called Francois, I sent it to him to read, and he was as enthusiastic as I was. The third, absolutely crucial to this enterprise, was Howard Shore. This central component of this film, this piece of music called the Song of Names, that didn't actually exist. It was a line in the book and a line in the script. It says, and then he performs the Song of Names. But there was no such thing as the mm-hmm. Song of Names. Mm-hmm. It's not, it had to be invented and created. So Howard began working on the score for this film almost two years before we actually made the film, which is the exact reverse of how it usually works. The composer tends to be the last one in after the film is edited, but not this time. And so the the fundamental pieces of music for this film were written and orchestrated and recorded before the film was made. It's really a testament to the true brilliance and greatness of Howard Shore that he created the wings upon which this story flies. And literally, they are, he gave the story its wings, more so than certainly any sound, any, any music score of any film I've worked on. He's uh, going to be a guest on the program, so we're so thrilled to have him. And one of the elements that I, I really love is him you've got these violin solos that are happening throughout the film and and then he actually works the score to sort of under underscore you know these violin recitals and so on it's quite beautiful and and i think quite an accomplishment musically francois girard also had a lot to do with this because they actually they worked together very closely Mm -hmm. and collaborated and occasionally they would give me a peek of what they were doing sometimes I'd get impatient and say okay I just want okay it's time for me to hear it before we started making the film and then they would say well we're still working on it wait a little while and and then one day heard the first version eventually it was refined but the first version of the central piece of music of the song of names and and i cried which is not something i do often no. um at least <laughs> not if i can help it <laughs> but when i heard it i had tears in my eyes and that's i knew okay this is going to work they could still be alive if he wanted to be found don't you think he would have come to you long ago your family perished? I don't know. Why are you wasting your time finding David after half a lifetime? I might be all he's got. And 
Clive Owen, Tim Roth, I mean, both great actors, and I don't think we've seen them quite like this in a film before. Somewhat understated, we're not seeing Tim Roth, you know, dealing with a bullet in his gut or something like that. Clive Owen, uh, uh, these these are uh, stretches for these guys, and they allowed them to uh, kind of... Very much so. I yeah. mean, we went to Clive first for the role of Dovidol, even though Dovidol is not in the entire film. Tim Roth's role is much larger. Much, yeah. I mean, it takes more screen time. But we went to Clive first and he asked us, why are you coming to me with this role instead of why aren't you casting the, the other role first? And so Francois and I said, well, because this is a story of looking for Dovidol, the violin prodigy who disappears on the eve of his first concert. And so well, I, won't, I won't give away more of the story, but and we said, I said, we said to Clive, you are the one we're looking for. It's got to be worth our while. And he, you know, he took on this role. He had never played anything, any, any character you know, remotely like this. Uh, it's certainly a stretch in terms of who he is in real life, which is what acting is. He's a great actor, so, and, that's, and that was, that's why he took it on. Because he had never done anything like this. In the case of Tim Roth, who we went to next for the role of Martin, Tim Roth usually plays, as you just said, he's got either a bullet in him or he's putting a bullet in someone else. That's right, he can be um, a real tough guy. Absolutely, or, sure. he's, uh, or he's trying to rob Sam Jackson at a diner <laughs> in Pulp right. Fiction. Yeah. But he usually plays very edgy characters. And I have to give credit Francois with this more than myself. It was Francois was convinced that in ca- we needed to cast an actor who has the edge that Tim Roth has, the absolute sort of built-in, about to, a time bomb that could explode at any time, that because Martin was actually a passive character in our story, he is subordinate to the alpha male Dovidol that we wanted an actor who had that edge and to make that a, the passive observer into someone who was truly interesting. And then... When he does explode, and that's all I'll say about that, uh, however brief it might be, it's memorably powerful. Sure is. I was frightened in that moment, to be sure. It is a great achievement. I think you put a wonderful group together to make it. And uh, Robert, congratulations on this film. Thank you very much. It's really great to spend some time with you today, and thanks again. You're really good at what you do. It's a pleasure being here. Right? <laughs> I think I managed a, uh, a win on that one. Robert, he's a no-nonsense guy, but uh, we came out friends, and uh, you can see the photos of the two of us right after that conversation is over. And every time I see those pictures, it just makes me laugh. Robert Lantos, good times. Don't forget, you can enjoy The Song of Names with Clive Owen and Tim Roth in select theaters. Keep an eye out for it on streaming services in the weeks to come and for purchase and download as well and the soundtrack just fantastic Howard Shore the composer enjoy listening to it where you uh, download or stream or purchase music and Howard will be here on Thursday for our remix episode and it's sort of a new episode in a way because it's two conversations I've had with Howard over the years uh, that I've never put out on the podcast and we talk about all his work with Martin Scorsese and David Cronenberg and the new film Song of Names and of course his Lord of the Rings soundtrack so Howard is our guest on Thursday that is it you can listen to episodes of Art at the End of the World at classicalfm.ca 
artattheendoftheworld.com and everywhere you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe at iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and SoundCloud. And thank you once again to our sponsors today, Red Eye Media and Crow's Theater. Couldn't do it without you. And thanks to you. Thank you for checking out the program. We're on Facebook. Twitter is at Art at the End. My Instagram handle is at Wigdad. We're back here on Thursday with Howard Shore. We'll speak to you then and for as long as we can. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.